shady so we have a special treat for you today. We have the assistant curator of the Art of the Americas, James Doyle here from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Hi, James. Hi, Rock. So we invited you in because I am dying to talk about your Taino show at the museum called Arte del Mar. Do you want to tell people about it? Sure. So the full title is Arte del Mar, Artistic Exchange in the Caribbean. And uh, I like to call it Tainos and Friends because really the objective was to highlight the ancient civilizations that were all around the rim of the Caribbean Sea. So that includes the islands of the Antilles archipelago, as well as their peers on the coastlines of Central and South America. So we're talking Costa Rica, Panama, and Colombia, but also all the way up north into Honduras. And I didn't include the Yucatan Peninsula, of course, but there's a whole story there. So this is really about the sort of southern Central America into South America and then the uh, Tainos as um, roughly 500 AD to about 1500. So the Tainos has this sort of role in the imagination, I think, because, you know, they were the first people that Columbus had contact with in the New World and then proceeded to massacre and genocide and slaughter them until their numbers sort of dwindled. But most people are often surprised Tainos actually exist in the world. And I was just looking up the statistics. And in in Puerto Rico in the 2010 census, they identified close to 10,000 people who actually identify as Taino. But then in addition to that, there's roughly about 35,000 people in Puerto Rico that identify as some type of Native American. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the legacy of Taino today? Just so people can get a little bit of a context. Sure. Yeah, I think that's one of the really exciting things of the last sort of 30 or 40 years is the more recognition of indigeneity in the Caribbean, especially the islands. And so you have a lot of different Taino groups that are sort of reclaiming this heritage. And it's very exciting. It's 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 part of this larger conversation about indigeneity in what is now the United States, of course, and, and how that can be celebrated around the country. And so the Taino legacy is quite interesting because we actually use a lot of Taino words. Oh, really? Like yeah, what? so barbecue, of course, comes from barbacoa, mm. which is, is the Taino word for how you cook certain meat. Iguana, hurricane, hammock. Hurricane um, too. Huracan, yeah. So it was the distinct word for these mega storms that would hit the islands periodically. Um, and so we have a lot of linguistic evidence. We have a lot of anthropological evidence as well. And of course, the new field of sort of archaeological genetics has um, really shown that there are a lot of legacies, of course, with genetic material in the Antilles. And of course, I'm not trying to equate genetic material with cultural identity, but it's just one of the lines of evidence that people are using in order to to learn more about the Tainos and their impact on the modern world. Because it really was, I mean, that point where when the Europeans arrived with enslaved peoples from Africa to the Caribbean, that was the first real global nexus that uh, we see in history, because that was just where everything happened. And since the Spanish were in only the Caribbean islands from, of course, 1492 to about 1519, that, that was really this hub of all that activity. Wow. So now, one of the misconceptions I already brought up, the fact that there are no Taino left. What are some of the others that you've encountered? Well, I come at this from uh, as an archaeologist, and I think uh, that was another thing that drew me to this uh, exhibition topic, because 
as we look at civilizations in the global past, I think the um, in the 20th century, political anthropology was very uh, focused on placing people in hierarchies of societies, right? And right. what is simple to complex? And I'm trying to kind of jettison that question because it's super boring for me. I'm more interested in what people are doing, how they organize themselves, what are the different types of governance that we mm -hmm. see, what are the material record, what are, what are the things that are left behind that give us those clues. So I think one misconception is that they weren't complex civilizations. But mm. we know, and, and there are these nuggets in the evidence that you know, there's a real diversity of what's going on in politics, even within the Antilles. For example, you know, between Hispaniola, which is Haiti mm -hmm. and the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico, it, it seems that there are different ways that these leaders, both men and women, known as caciques, were organizing and sort of relating to each other. And so what we can think about for an exhibition context is, so how do we see that in the art? How do we see that in the materials? How do we see that in how do we see the interaction? How do we see the exchange? But also, how are people making themselves unique and differentiating mm. themselves from their neighbors? So I think th that was the biggest misconception that I wanted to take on here and kind of start that conversation because my colleagues at the NMAI, the, the Smithsonian at the, the National Customs Museum House, of the American Indian. Press. Yes. They did a wonderful exhibition on the misconception that you brought up before, which is right. there is this Taino legacy. So it was great to kind of build on that talk about the contemporaneous or the contemporary world of the Tainos and then think about, okay, but let's also talk about how the Tainos fit in this larger picture, mm. which is thinking about the Caribbean Sea as uh, not a, just a passive surface that people are sort of traversing, but really a, a connecting agent. And right. we can see that in the visual world, in the, in the visual story. Global archipelago, the Caribbean, <laughs> right? Right. Where exactly. all the, so many worlds meet, uh, you know, and, and always have been, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the images of the Taino that I wanted to talk about is the Trigonolito. Mm -hmm. Now, did I say that right? Trigonolito, yes. Trigonolito, <laughs> which is a three-pointed Zemi figure. Mm -hmm. For some of you who may see it, it looks almost like a little mountain or like maybe even like a little creature with a, a hump on its back or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, you know, so many look very different. Now, that seems to be ubiquitous. And anything that related to Taino, that seems to be the image we see. Mm -hmm. I think I even saw one maybe in a museum in, in Asia. And, mm -hmm. you know, these are the sort of the objects that circulate, right, yeah. to, to represent Taino culture. Yeah. What is it? Because it's not really clear. Like, as someone who's even read about them, they're fascinating. They seem to be related to deities of some sort. But then they all seem to be kind of unique and mm -hmm. different. Yeah. So, they're they're a fascinating group of objects, and um, you know, as a as an example of their ubiquity. Now, I went to uh, San Juan. I was there actually for the the Three Kings Day uh, Epiphany no, in the Christian calendar, and there was this you know sort it's of quite a party there. It's I a hear. big party, and there was was one plaza, and one of the three wise men, of course, was carrying a zemi as an offering to the to the Christ. One of these three pointed oh, wow. stones. So they're really an iconic sort of material symbol of, of Taino-ness, right? Um, and I love that kind of contemporary engagement with the ancient totally. images. But from what we know is they are really votive objects. We don't know exactly the function, and I think they probably had multiple functions. And we know from a specific account that was written by one of the very first people to live among the Tainos uh, from Europe, 
This is a friar named Ramon Panay. He was a Catalan priest that accompanied Columbus and arrived in 1496 and wrote the only real account we have that's very anthropological. You know, it's mm. like they tell me this, uh, this is what I'm seeing, this is what they say. And according to him, the the three-pointed zemis had something to do with yuca. And of course, this mm. is the staple root crop of the Caribbean region. And so it's something about agricultural fertility, but also uh, it has been interpreted, as you just said, it's, it's a sort of piece of the landscape that's shaped like the mountainous landscape of a place like Puerto Rico. And so you have this sort of mountain made manifest and it's a tangible... Mm. And, and they're special stones. So the group, there are six in the exhibition, and the group I brought together, these are actually spectacular loans from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. And they have a real wide variety of stone. You see some beautiful green stone. They're clearly going out and choosing special parts of the landscape. And that's one of the hallmarks of Taino art, is that it's about taking something from the landscape and giving it a specific identity mm. so that you can have that as a participant in your community. And so these three-pointed stones have um, human imagery. They have more sort of supernatural, anthropomorphic being imagery. They have reptiles and birds. And so I tried to also get a group that shows really the range of images because right. I think they had lots of meanings. And I think, you know, we can um, interpret them as having sort of different meanings over time for different peoples as well. That's another thing I tried to kind of piece apart was that what we call Taino, and this is, you know, other people's research have shown this recently, is that it's a, an umbrella term. You know, right. we, we don't know what they call themselves. So Tainos is kind of this broad brush that we're looking at a real diverse group of, of societies. So where's the name come from? It comes from 19th century research. Um, oh, wow. And it's mostly related to the linguistic. So people were trying to figure out the sort of language families of the world, right? So it either comes from there was a, a word, Nitaino, that could have meant sort of a social class that was mm. recorded by the Spanish. Mm. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that think it comes from different places, but it was mostly used for the peoples of the Antilles in the 19th century. Wow. So now, one of the things about the Taino, the objects themselves, one of the things I, I still can't get over is how many of them are wooden? And for a place that, you know, anybody who's been to the Caribbean knows it's super humid. And humidity is your enemy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, anyone who's tried to stay there, who's tried to preserve an object there, I'm sure has encountered that. Mm -hmm. These objects look like they're in great condition. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? So, like I said, there is this deep engagement with the landscape in mm -hmm. Taino art. And so what we see is caves as sites of really important thought and really important events. And so the caves on the landscape are really something that is special. They're often carved up themselves, so they're actually mm. putting images into the stalactites and the, the entrances. So of the they caves. actually carve them in? Yeah, there are, there are lots of petroglyphs across the islands, and some of these have been recorded in Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico. So there are mm -hmm. a lot of pre-colonization rock art that has been recorded in paintings and, and mm -hmm. in, um, carvings. So. This is a long uh, way of explaining the wood, which is that they would also deposit things in caves. And so we know that many of these perishable organic Taino works of art that have survived were found in caves. And so the Met in the Met collection is a very well-known wooden sculpture that dates to about 1000 AD, which makes it one of the oldest of the wooden survivors. 
that uh, was probably found in a cave because the surface is really well preserved, as you noted. And we also have on loan from St. Louis, another um, sculpture that also is very well preserved. These also are this Zemi category of beings. And uh, just to sort of define that, it's, it's really to do with deities and ancestors. And a lot of them had specific names. And, you know, talking to some of the people, especially, the, you know, one of the curators of the Anime I show, I thought, I'll just keep the names neutral now, because I think my point is that this sculpture from 1000 AD may not be the same identity that we hear in 1496, right? Right, right. So, you know, I wanted to give that kind of agency to the Zemi himself, you know, um, we'll, maybe his name, he'll reveal his name to <laughs> our visitors, but I love that. Um, really, the wood is spectacular because they're carving up very dense tropical hardwood. And the way we know they're doing this is that actually the Spanish recorded that it's a, a dialogue. It's this sort of collaborative sculptural production in which the uh, ruler is walking through the forest and receives some sort of energy or a vision from mm. the tree itself. And it's about, it's connected to this Zemi and it's connected to this broader force that's in the landscape. And then the leader then brings a healer and probably a sculptor together to decide what what identity that the wood will take and what sort of function too because it the the one that opens the exhibition is a functional stand so you have right. a surface on top the one from the St. Louis Art Museum is more like a surface that's sort of maybe placed on a table like a bowl almost. yeah, yeah. Uh, some sort of platter and then we have two other wooden sculptures that were actually from the northernmost part of where the Tainas lived in Turks and Caicos in the Bahamas mm -hmm. archipelago and those are seats so they're these sort of graceful wooden mimicry of hammocks and so you can sort of imagine somebody straddling these creatures and then laying back in these um, I've called them portable thrones just to sort of right. give a sense that these are really special they're not they, the seat doesn't really capture what what was going on with them so they were placed in caves at the end of their use life or even perhaps after many generations of use so that's the only reason that that they survive and so we have a couple of dozen wooden taino objects and then actually there are, there are very very few woven fabric and textile and beaded mm -hmm. objects that survived as well so we have clues as into this sort of perishable world. And so where do most of these Taino objects exist in the world now? There are plenty in the Dominican Republic. There are some wooden objects in the National Collections of Cuba. Mm -hmm. The Smithsonian has a few that were collected in Puerto Rico in the 19th mm -hmm. century, or Turks and Caicos, like I mentioned. And then there are some in the British Museum, the Cabron Lee, some Italian museums. These are things that were probably sent over early on in the colonization um, that ended up in sort of curiosity collections and so one of the most well preserved is in the british museum because it's the only example that has gold leaf still mm -hmm. on the the surface of the zemi's face that's amazing i love talking to you james because you've been such a great authority for many people you may remember when james helped us understand this maya dish that we were talking about <laughs> Dear last tamales, year yes yes that's right exactly so one of the things about the imagery that really fascinated me in this exhibition is the use of bats mm -hmm. and bat-related, but also other types of animals. Do you want to talk a little bit about, is there anything unique about this imagery that you found that might be unlike, let's say, the, what the Maya did or mm -hmm. other groups in the region? Yeah, I think that flight was something that really people wanted to harness and wear and use. And so thinking you mean about the flight of bats? the power of flights. Oh, yeah. So I the, see. the power of being able to fly. Right. So we see a lot of symbols of power made out of greenstone or gold 
or even um, sort of we have a stone bowl from Honduras that has handles that are bats from the Ulua Valley. And so we have these sort of creatures that are they're hard to catch. You know, they, they're mm. they're they're nocturnal. They have echolocation. So they, they have a lot of special features that are either part of the sort of political power of people would be mm-hmm. claiming to have these these powers as well. Or they could also be sort of symbols of a, an extended family. You know, you think about this as something that's sort of widespread in the, in the global past, thinking about having these uh, sort of symbols of your group. So what we see also is that there's a sort of overlap between bats and birds. And so there's there we have some images of sort of eagles with spread wings or you know we we say eagles because that's what the the Spanish call them <laughs> aguilas. But it's more they're more supernatural birds. They're they're more I like to imagine the birds and the bats in the in the exhibition in these pendants and and other objects as also a collaboration because they're they're all different and so you think Somebody says, well, I want this gold bird necklace to have two heads, and I want it to have the body of the bird be a bell and sonic qualities, of course. You know, you think about the songs of birds and bats and other flying creatures that would have made these pendants come alive in performance and in dance, which is also another important part of the region. Which reminds me when we were talking about Maya art Mm and how the fact that sometimes like speak bubbles Mm -hmm. seem to like, so there was like an interest in revealing sound, right? Is this a similar kind of thing or is just just a sensitivity to sound? Like how would you describe that? And is that common throughout the region? Yeah, I think one of the things that unites the, the Caribbean region before colonization is the big spaces they're creating, you know, these these architectural moments are plazas. They're big mm. stages. And when the Spanish arrive, and one of the quotations we have on the wall in the exhibition is, is from uh, one of the colonizers, Oviedo, and he says, these songs, these performances are their books. Mm. These, these performances are their histories. So even the Spanish early on recognized that these these gatherings and these songs and these performances were the way that knowledge is transmitted. And so I think then, going back to your question about the sound, these bells, these gold and greenstone and shell pendants, and you can imagine all kinds of beadwork and other, like there's there's a lot of marine shell found in archaeological context. So there, you would have heard from a long distance what was going on. And so I do think that sound and capturing that in both objects that kind of clang together. Uh, but also that's that's another part of birds and why what their power is because mm. they greet us at the at the beginning of the day. And you so you think about you know all of the Or screech at us, <laughs> screech at us at night for the bats. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so or if you can imagine if you've ever seen millions of bats pour out of a cave at dusk right it's such i mean it's like a, a it's a wave in the sky so you you, right. you think about all of these sights and sounds they wanted to harness that into what they were wearing and mm. uh, make that a part of their practice as leaders and healers and dancers right yeah that sounds it's such a powerful image because just you know seeing a group of bats has its own kind of sound but beauty mm-hmm. and i would imagine the performances themselves sort of evoked similar kinds of you know awe yes, perhaps absolutely so now the spanish colonizers they they recognize this about performance did they ever record them or like in sort of like what they were actually singing about or anything about them no they they didn't often it's like they get right to where 
you want them to go and then they don't record it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the Taino word for the performance is aretos. And actually, that's another real uh, connection to the contemporary movements because they, aretos are still staged today. In what Puerto are aretos? Aretos are these... Oh, or what do they translate as for the people who may not know It's It's this uh, performance. It's this, okay. it's the story. It's the, it's the gathering. It's the dancing. It's, it's a festival. Got it. Right. And so that was really what they they realized. And then, of course, they realized that that was so powerful that they have to end it. Right. I mean, this is that. So, uh, of course, this is the, the colonizer's mission. Right. It's right. to figure out how it's working and then deconstruct. Right. That Sounds and, like what happened with like potlucks in the in the Northwest. Yeah, the potlatches, with, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah potlatches yeah. with uh, the Haida and the other groups. Yeah. And so, so. Um, I think that's another going back to your earlier question about the misconceptions. It's this oral tradition is very powerful and I think has received less attention because we can't read their texts. You know, we don't have stone monuments like we do with the Maya. We don't have these beautiful plates that tell us what they were eating. But so I think that as anthropologists, as archaeologists, as art historians, we have to do better at saying, why are these things looking different? And what do we know about how they were expressing themselves? And then how can we learn from that? And how can we apply that to thinking about how are people governed? How are people organizing themselves? That kind right. of thing. So is there any imagery that's unique just to Taino people? I would say yes. I mean, the the three-pointed stones are really found only in the Antilles and going in greater and lesser Antilles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a real that's a real unique sort of expression of these concepts. And there are some interesting connections too, because we have a pair of these stone collars that are also from Puerto Rico, but they've been called yokes in the past, which is mm-hmm. erroneous because they're not yoking. There are no animals that they're yoking, right. but they have perhaps a connection to the rubber ball game, which also was found in the Antilles oh. by the Spanish that most people would know from the mainland, from That's Mexico, right. Central America, That's right. from the Maya area and from um, Highland Mexico. With, with their very high hoops. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. So we don't know the connection there and we don't know if these stone collars were connected to the ball game like other similar sort of oh. U-shaped objects were in Veracruz, Mexico, for example. So, And they're very beautiful. And I mean, out of all the objects, they really do look luxurious, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, certainly the gold does too. But first of all, they're kind of almost carved like battleships. Like they're mm-hmm. so like perfect but, and they haven't been chipped or whatever. Others tend to be more delicate. These are like robust objects that mm-hmm. look like they were meant to be used. Yeah, and I think this is, this is the one category of things the Spanish say nothing about. Interesting. So it's interesting because one of um, the researchers has hypothesized that these were actually the most important. So they were kept from Spanish view at all costs. Oh, wow. Another interpretation, of course, was that they were sort of an earlier practice that was no longer in use by the Mm. time the Spanish arrived. So we're not really sure why they didn't mention these beautiful stone collars. And we don't know exactly how they were used or worn. The most cogent interpretation I've heard is that you would kind of put one arm through and then wear it like a sash as a sort of very permanent, durable version of a a cloth or leather. Well, because they're very oval. I could see that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's maybe what's going on. But also we they have Zemi imagery built into them. They they have this sort of way of abstracting or, or 
selecting little images that go on parts of the collars that you sort of see throughout. So that's funny when you say that because when I first saw them, I thought they were connected to the Zemi because uh-huh. of the type of sculpture. Exactly, yeah. this sort of like shallow sculpture that kind of like has suggestions of things mm-hmm. without it being super clear. Right, what it is this kind of. Uh, I don't know, stew of images, you know, that they sort of pick from. So now what do we know about the artisans that make this? Are there any names? Are, do we know the genders of these people? Do we know anything about, I mean, were they trading with the Maya? Were they trading with others? Are all the stones, for instance, from the islands themselves or did they come elsewhere? So the short answer about the identities of the artists is that we don't know much. But we can draw analogies from other parts of the ancient world in the Americas. For example, we know that sculptors in the Maya area signed some works, and so we can see them working in an atelier structure. There's probably somebody in charge, and you have people working on multiple things. So there are probably many hands that go into these. And as far as uh, men or women, we don't really know, but in general, it looks like we have stone working was a male realm and other things like pottery, weaving, beadwork that was female, but it's not fixed. So right. I think in different cultures, we have different ways of expressing How things. How about gold? Gold, um, evidence we have from South America is that it was a, a male activity, but uh, think about beeswax that you need to make a lost wax casting that could be collected by females. So I think it's it's really better to think about these multiple hands. Right. Yeah. So now, have any ateliers been discovered, like places where these were actually made? So we just don't have, for example, I think if we had more of the wooden sculptures, we could right. probably identify the hands like you do with, you know. So how um, few of them are there? There are really, gosh, I'd have to look up, but maybe 40 something. So That's it. Of the wow. big, of the larger yeah. wooden sculptures. There are a lot of fragments often found in uh, waterlogged sites, for example, right. or caves. Right. But, you know, what we know is that they were probably not just artists. There, there was probably an idea that the sculptor had a very spiritual role as well as expressing this Zemi concept. And so, you know, I think we can think about them as working in a collaborative way, both for the production of the actual sculpture, but also in its activation in the community life, which is the most important, I think, uh, role of these works. And that's another thing I wanted to emphasize in this region we have these symbols of power that were made and used and worn that had this spiritual significance as well. And so that's, you know, I think people often look at things that are made of gold, for example, and think, because what we think of gold is ostentatious. We think right. of it as, as showing off, but it's not that. It's it's harnessing, you know, the gold is sun power. Right. You know, it's it, there, are, there are a lot of layers of meaning that right. go into that that aren't necessarily about luxury. Well, isn't there that famous story of the Maya with the gold? Sort of like they didn't understand why the Spanish wanted all this gold, (laughs) you know? Isn't there like a famous story about that? So it's like in the same way, it was sort of like, you know, they probably didn't understand. They thought this was just, you know, a sacred material they used, but Mm -hmm. why people would want to (laughs) covet it the way the Spanish did was probably amazing. Exactly. And some of the gifts we know that the Tainos gave to the Europeans were these beaded you know, the, these these are extraordinary laborious, you know, to create. And mm-hmm. so there's a belt in the uh, Welt Museum Vienna mm-hmm. that is the most complete version of a, of a Taino belt. Also... Always with, in a European museum. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it happened. Um, <laughs> essentially, the belt is in itself a three-dimensional beaded bat that would have been worn. And so wow. this was probably one of these gifts. And so they're 
we don't know exactly how much gold was circulating in the islands, but we do know that, of course, in Central and South America, in the Colombia especially, there are lots and lots of gold objects. But most of the gold that was recovered by the colonizers from the Antilles was melted down. So we don't have right. a lot of we don't have a lot of evidence for that. So to know about who was making them or trading them was hard to say. But one thing I do want to mention is greenstone as a material. Because yeah. can you explain what that is? Sure. Because you know you mentioned it a couple of times now. And I mean, it's a beautiful stone, but what is it? So there is a whole spectrum of sort of mineralogical formations that people are visiting and carving. And so we're looking at lots of serpentines or jaspers or in specifically Mesoamerica and Costa Rica, we see jadeite, which is a, a very specific mineral. And so this is a symbolic material that's really flowing throughout the Caribbean region as well. And so we do know that they're trading it heavily because some of the jadeite sources have been identified. And a lot of it is coming out of what is now Guatemala, southern Mm -hmm. Guatemala. But there are some recent studies that have found jadeite sources in Cuba and the Dominican Republic. So that is making its way north to the Bahamas, for example. Mm -hmm. So we know that greenstone is something that is really flowing around. And so we see them taking different forms. A lot of these uh, yokes and trigonolitas are sort of made out of local stones from Puerto Rico, for example. But we can imagine that some of these jadeite objects are, are, are being made originally in Mesoamerica, let's say, oh, wow. and then traded down to Costa Rica. And we have a couple of examples of these re-carved objects in, in the exhibition from the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. And then those, in turn, are then traded as these sort of transcultural symbols. And again, there are a lot of birds, there are a lot of bats. So we, we can see that even if you don't know what the original meaning was, you can take that on as a, as a meaning. Totally. If it's traded up to, say, the Lesser Antilles, for example, we have um, some jadeite that probably came from the mainland that ended up in Vieques, Puerto Rico. So wow. there, there was a site there that was excavated in the 1980s by Puerto Rican archaeologists that has jade sort of condors or vultures, which are not native to the, right. to the island. So it's clear that they're being traded. And the imagery, that's really fast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming to think of it, I could see why they were interested in flight and birds. I mean, when you're living on archipelagos of islands, mm-hmm. it does seem like it would probably be the best way you know, yes. <laughs> of getting be, around. It would be much faster than a canoe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Though nowadays, flying in the Caribbean is terrible. You know, it's it's a whole different thing. So now, what did the other civilizations around the Taino say about them? Or were there any perceptions? Like, did the Maya have a stereotype of the Taino? The southwest, you know, in the southeast of the United States, a lot of the indigenous groups, did they have any contact with Tainos? I mean, Turks and Caicos is not Mm -hmm. that far away. Yeah, it's a great question. And we have clues, right? We don't have explicit statements. We have these clues. For example, there was a a bone spoon made out of a manatee rib that was excavated in a tomb in Belize, in a Maya Mm. lord's tomb. That may be one of these ritual spoons that we see in in the Antilles, for example. And that's Belize is not very far. And the currents, actually, if you sail up past Cozumel, you can actually reach Cuba quite easily. So we also have connection. There have been arguments that in the sort of Florida Keys and Southern Florida, there, you know, there, there are these peoples that are navigating. And I think, you know, we can use an analogy from the Pacific peoples, which we know that they were capable of navigating by the stars and with outrigger canoe type boats, very, very long distances. And so I think we are... So we have these clues, but without the sort of explicit depiction of Tainos coming to Chichen Itza, we don't really get that yet. But I think that there's some evidence that 
you know, when the Spanish arrived, that there were sort of these connections. And that's another thing that I wanted to emphasize. This whole region, the Caribbean Sea, was such a vibrant zone of interaction. And it wasn't invented by European colonists. Right. They, they co-opted this whole network of peoples for their own purposes. But that was really what was very active before. So I, I can imagine that there were people moving all around. And there's new evidence that people could actually sail from what is now Venezuela directly to Puerto Rico uh, on the current. So they're trying to model how people could get around and then perhaps do more archaeology to figure out what the exact connections of trade were. Well, and the thing about the sailing and and ships also suggests that they had a, a very sophisticated idea of either if it's mathematics or, you know, distant physics or Mm -hmm. something so i think people sometimes forget what how sophisticated sailing is right you know particularly in in such a a a region like the caribbean where currents and other things that play a big role. no and i think it's just like the word hurricane right they are really recording what's going on around them and they're they're masters at getting around these islands and it's uh, you can imagine that there were these waves of migrations too. I mean, I think that's another thing that uh, we see early on. People are farming maize, you know, in second millennium BC in Puerto Rico. So peoples are getting around and they're interacting and they're learning from each other and they're sharing ideas. And so uh, I think that's why I wanted to include exchange in the title, really. <laughs> totally. And then some of the other objects in it, there's uh, different pendants, mm-hmm. there are uh, ceremonial axes, pedestal bowls, mm-hmm. incense burners. So they were burning incense? Yeah, definitely. And that was another thing, you know, we have a large incense burner in the exhibition that's from the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. And thinking about performance and thinking about ceremony, it's one of the things that trying to make exhibitions, it's like you want to you want to bring people into the the mm-hmm. story and to think about scent and smoke as really important parts of ritual. Just worldwide. like sound. Just, Just like, like sound. sound. Yeah. Exactly. And so we know there is less of a study of the sort of residue analysis in this, this Caribbean region, but we know from other parts of the Americas, we have copal, which is a tree resin that is really actually fragrant, fragrant and burned all throughout Mesoamerica. Uh, but we also have other types of tree resins. Probably there are uh, there's use of tar or other mm. types of sort of geologic scent um, type substances to in rituals. But it's about this mediation between the what is we the mortals are seeing and doing <laughs> and smoke. It's this evanescent material that then goes away. So it's it's sort of we know from lots of the ethnography in the Americas that this was about connecting the earthly realm to the divine. And so that's definitely a part of of the Caribbean story as well. Yeah, it's such a shame. So many of these objects during the colonial period that were collected or looted, however, I guess, tomato, tomato, you know, it's it's amazing how much of that context has been lost. Mm -hmm. So, you know, often we're dealing with sort of like just one part of a ceremony, which may have not even been the most important part of the ceremony, right? right? And we're often uh, using them to try to decipher these bigger things. Now, one of the things I loved about this little show, which congratulations, I think it was a really beautiful little, you know, introduction to some of these imagery and different things, is you brought in some contemporary and modern artists. Mm -hmm. The modern artist is Wilfredo Lam, mm-hmm. who's a you know a, a famous Cuban modernist, and his painting "Rumblings of the Earth" mm-hmm. from 1950. Tell us a little bit about why you chose that, and then sure. also bring in some of the contemporary work you were talking. Yeah, about. Um, you know, really, just if I had had unlimited budget, unlimited space, it could have been a larger story of what happened after 1492. But 
I wanted to, with the space that I had, I wanted to really build a bridge to the present and think about uh, a lot of a lot of Caribbean artists, both in the region and in the diaspora, have reached out to ancestral imagery in their own practices. And one of the things that I thought was very important is to acknowledge the Afro-Caribbean story that is really, and it's, it's an Afro-Indigenous one. Right. So going back to your original question about the Taino presence today, a lot of it is very shared with the descendants of Africans that were brought by the Europeans as well. And so that is actually, it's very interesting to see West African religions like Santeria and Voodoo and these others that were brought over in when enslaved peoples were, were sort of forced to migrate with the Europeans those incorporated indigenous practices as they spread through that, throughout the Antilles in right. both escaped communities, but also just in the, the populations that were subjugated in the islands. And so when I was thinking about what can we, how can we sort of bring that conversation to this story, I was drawn to the biography of Wifred Alam, who, of course, you know, born in Cuba, but then goes to study in Europe and goes back to Cuba during World War II and reconnects with these Afro-Indigenous traditions in his own family, in his own homeland. And so this particular painting, actually, I was drawn to because, like you saw in the ancestral works in the main part of the show, it's about flight and ceremony and sacrifice, and there are these flying creatures. He, mm-hmm. he kind of, Lam creates the, his sort of bestiary, if you want to say, of these sort of symbols of this, right. of uh, Santeria and these other traditions. And they're, they're flying creatures. And so I was really interested in kind of making that conceptual bridge, but he's not explicitly referencing ancient American, you know, works. Right. But I think the important point is that these themes were present in the 20th century in these Afro-Indigenous worlds. And so that's what he's tapping into. Got it. And so really, I wanted that painting, which I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for our colleagues at the Guggenheim for lending it. It's It's just got a nice presence and... I wanted that painting to start this conversation about what are these legacies of indigenous Caribbeans, but also the Afro-indigenous story. And so, you know, of course, COVID has uh, changed a lot of our plans for this year, but we are working with Miguel Luciano, who's at a yep. residence in the Civic Practice Partnership at the Met. He, and he's a Puerto Rican. He's from Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, he's from Puerto Rico. And, you know, we actually collaborated with our photo studio to create a three-dimensional model of the wooden Zemi that opens the exhibition. And so Miguel is now figuring out how to incorporate that into his practice of sort of bringing these iconic Caribbean materials and, and objects in alternative sort of contexts, right? Mm. And so uh, we're working with him on that. And so I, I love the idea that, you know, these energies that were originally harnessed by the Taino sculptor from the environment, they're inspired by this tree, they're inspired by these stones, is then able to be sort of redistributed in a contemporary art context. Because, you know, it's part of this whole recognition of indigeneity in the Caribbean. And um, so it it was really exciting for me as an archaeologist to kind of work with contemporary artists and talk to contemporary people that are identifying as Taino and, and drawing from Taino imagery to see how can you know this type of exhibition inform what people think about in the future and how can 
not just from a sort of my little, little nerdy way of like thinking about these in a different way. How can... Um, hey, you're among fellow nerds. It's all good. <laughs> you know, I think just thinking about how can this inspire a new generation of people from the region or from diaspora communities in New York. I mean, we have so many people from the Caribbean Absolutely in New York. Absolutely huge. That there's a real hunger for good information about the Tainos and their peers. I agree. So let's talk about that Zemi stand. It's the last thing I want to talk about because... One thing I've been thinking about in the, I mean, this is a beautiful wooden sculpture with shell, um, you know, and it's fairly large. I mean, about half half a meter. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you say something yeah. like that? It looks very much like a lot of West African sculpture. Now, I wonder, was there an influence on African sculpture from the Americas, or is it mutual? I mean, what what's the what do you attribute some of these similar imagery? You know, like that work in particular feels very much like it could easily be a 19th century West African object of some sort. Now, what is that relationship? Because we often talk about European colonization and stuff, but we forget to like sometimes make those connections between other regions that were not the ones colonizing. Right. You know, any thoughts? I mean, I think because of the context of the sculpture, because of the date of the sculpture, the, the way I think about it is that we have similar parallel traditions that involve physical sort of stylized versions of bodies and mm-hmm. playing on proportions and using dark woods and actually treating them the surface with ritual materials so there are all these sort of parallel practices that were going on in a lot of the ancient world including of course africa uh, we have this also in the pacific in north america so i think that the similarities are because of the sort of parallel structures and not necessarily any direct influence at all. Got it. And this is a stand that was used for consuming a very specific ritual substance known as coba that was documented by the Spanish. So, And what is that? It's a, probably, a, no one's really identified the specific recipe, but it's probably a vegetal powder or paste that had hallucinogenic powers. And so this would be part of healing and part of um, sort of community rituals and dance and performance. Mm. And so the wooden sculpture itself has this surface on the top for consuming that substance. But I think what I really wanted to emphasize in the sort of putting him front and forth at the entrance of the the exhibition is that this uh, presence, it's this ancestral or deity presence that he would have been considered to be there and participating. Mm. And so I'm, I'm being very sort of specific in saying he instead of it, right? Because um, I, I, I want to emphasize to people that this person, this entity represented in the wood had a name, had a whole story, had a biography. And we know that from the the fifteenth late 15th century accounts. And even though we don't know his name necessarily, we can see that he has features like the the shell teeth you mentioned. You know, he's he's crouched down. He is grimacing. You know, you can see all of his teeth in the inlay of shell. And actually, the the area of relief around the eyes shows that he's probably crying. There there are sort of watering channels that represent tears. And he's also a little bit emaciated. You can see his ribs and you can see his hips. So you can imagine that this ancestral figure uh, would have been very much a part of these rituals. And thinking about um, the actual uh, practices of inhaling these substances would have perhaps 
produce tears, or if you're fasting mm. in a ritual way, you would right. you would be um, you would have your well, ribs right. showing. And so, right. so thinking about the the connection to human activity that you see in the sculpture is also really interesting. And I the, also think the ribs kind of give a sense of mortality a little mm-hmm. bit, right? You know, it's sort of like these skeletal figures we see in different places. So yeah, definitely. And and so I think the emphasis in the sculpture is on the head, and so mm-hmm. that's another thing that has a sort of parallel analogous visual story to other parts of the ancient world to northwest coast you have this real emphasis of the sculpture on the head and the and the probably a woven head covering and the eyes also probably had shell inlays as well so that would have been really the focus and we know from other cultures in the americas that the head was this source of identity and power and so that's probably what we're seeing in the in the taino sculpture as well so it, it actually uh, there's a there are a lot of great comparisons to be made with other sculptural traditions especially because of the collaborative uh, nature of things that i mentioned before and good news for listeners is the Arte del Mar exhibition has been extended to June 27th of next year. Yes. So people have time to see it and it's highly recommended. Spend time with the objects. You know, they're really, they really have a personal touch. You know, they have like these really beautiful details. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that I really appreciated about it. As well as, I mean, I love the stools. I love, I mean, they're just so unique yeah. in many ways. And a lot of the imagery, even though, like I had mentioned, they sometimes look familiar, but they're kind of done in their own kind of language you know in this kind of different way so this was wonderful james thank you so much for your time thank you for having me and is there anything any final thoughts you'd wanted to share with people to sort of get them excited about taino uh, culture and art yeah i mean i think we're hopefully trying to reschedule some of the programs that we wanted to do in association with the exhibition so just stay tuned because i you know things might be virtual things might be maybe in person next year let's be optimistic but i think you know like i said i wanted this exhibition to start a conversation about the indigenous caribbean region and really its legacies in in the 20th century and into today so i'm really open to hearing what people think and and what's been really great is to receive the initial feedback back when the exhibition was open that you know people are having very personal reactions to this and and that's really the the power of working in an art museum which is is when you can have people feel these connections to to these ancestral traditions that like you said aren't as well known so i'm hoping that more people will get to know them well great thanks so much james thank you In this edition of the Hyperallergic Podcast, we have music by the visual artist B. Wirtz, who had just released their debut album called Some Songs, which comes out on October 16th via Hen House Studios. So the song you're listening to, The Shady Road, is the vocals and acoustic guitar is by B. Wirtz, and the drums, percussion, and bass are by Harlan Steinberger. I'm Hadag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and host of Hyperallergic Podcast. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.
Dust over there, dust over there, dust over there.